uh, as we side bring you into the context of where this passage is coming from. It's easy to forget. If you don't think so, you can talk to me for a while. We forget our lunch, we forget our keys, we forget our daily tasks. Sometimes it's easy even to forget people. We forget faces and names. We forget where we know them from and how we know them. Sometimes we even forget very popular people. I might be wrong, but I bet no one here probably remembers Thomas Sayers. What's fascinating about this is that during his lifetime, everyone would know him. He was so popular that at the time of his death in 1865 that over 100,000 people crowded to see him buried. They reportedly climbed over tombstones just to get a peek of his body going into the earth. Five years before that, when he had his final performance, it was so popular that all of England was crowding around for attendance. So literary greats at the time, like Charles Dickens, came to see him. Uh, Parliament shut down at a half day so they could go watch. Uh, the, the trains at the time rerouted their routes so that people could go to where he was going to be performing. Even the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, wanted to be informed immediately at the conclusion of the performance how well he did. And yet we don't even know who he is. He was five foot eight, 150 pounds, and he was the top bare knuckle boxer at the time. Bare knuckle boxing. Just think of that for a moment. He was so athletically gifted that he often fought against men that were much larger than him in stature and in weight. It's recorded that he only had one loss in his whole uh, career. And the amazing thing about it is many of his matches would extend beyond three hours of bare-knuckled boxing. One even went for 109 rounds. His last performance, his last match was against an American. And everyone crowded out to see it. That actually ended up in a tie as the people actually broke through the ring and crowded into the arena and they had to call the match. The point of all of this is not that uh, I can quiz you at the end about who he was, but the fact that he was so popular that everyone would know his name at the time, and yet we have no idea who he was. Time does that. But this all pales in comparison of knowing a great athletic person as in knowing the one who has never suffered defeat and has no blind spots. The God of space and time has pursued his people faithfully, actively, intentionally for all time, but his people instantly forget him when darkness sets in. 
God has used Isaiah to challenge and encourage his people way back in 700 B.C., and he is using Isaiah to challenge and encourage his people today. God is the only one who does not forget the past nor fear the future because he's actually present in both. To set the stage for Isaiah, uh, you should understand how it's divided. So really, Isaiah is 66 books long. 1 through 39 is the beginning section, which is where God is faith through, calls through his faithfulness about his promises and his judgment on Judah and Israel and other nations. And then 40 through 66, God also calls for faithfulness through his son, or the servant he sends, and the judgment that will follow in rejecting his son as well. And many theologians compare it to Old Testament and New Testament. God has promises that he's calling us to trust him, and then he reveals it more explicitly even in his son. But right in the middle of that, he presents a court case. At the beginning of Isaiah, he says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And then in 41 through 47, he's putting this case forward. See, what was happening at the time was this. Just prior to this, Assyria came in and took the northern kingdom of Israel away. And God had predicted that because of their unfaithfulness to him. He was bringing judgment. Predicting again that Babylonia was going to come and take Judah away, the southern. But even with them being taken away, he was also prophesying that there was going to be a redeemer who was going to come and free his people from Babylonia. The Israelites, though, said, God has forgotten us. Those gods over the Babylonians are coming and defeating us. That must mean that our God is not all-powerful. We are left alone again. And so as we enter into Isaiah 46, God is coming to them and saying, Oh, foolish. Oh, foolish people, you don't understand who I am. You have no valid argument to distrust me. What God reveals to them is that he is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over time. A hundred years from when Isaiah is talking is when this gentleman, Cyrus, is going to rise up and come through the Persian nation and conquer Babylonia and set the Jews free. All of Isaiah names him by name that this is Cyrus, my anointed one, coming. The Jews go, can't be. That's not going to happen. And so he lays out his argument. So please read Isaiah 46 with me. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. 
Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. As you read through there and do some study, you'll notice how many of those words have to do with time. As God reveals himself, he's putting himself in relation to time. This He's putting forth in the middle of this trial to say, look, this is why you should trust me because I'm sovereign over the past and the future and the present. Let's look at how he reveals himself as being the God of the past and future. Right at the beginning, he is saying he's sovereign over the beginning of things. Look at verse 10. He says, he is declaring the end from the beginning. From the very beginning of things, God was there. He's the one declaring it at the very beginning of existence. Jump back one chapter to chapter 45, and if you look in verse 18, he says this, For thus, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. God is making this argument that he was there at the beginning of things. But not only that, he's also saying he was there at the beginning of things and nothing he ever does is empty. Do you notice the words he said there? Who Created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. God never does anything that's empty. It's never empty. 
Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall, re not, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In contrast, just think for a moment if you've ever said an empty word. Have you ever done anything that has no purpose behind it? You've done it out of duty. You've done it without meaning, without intention. God is not that way. Every single thing that God has ever done is not empty. It's full of life. It's full of meaning. It's full of purpose. Nothing is mediocre. There is not one spot in the Bible that God said, it's all right, you can read over that. S skim through that list of genealogies. I, I just put that there for a record. Everything that God has ever recorded and has ever done is full of meaning from the beginning of time until the end of time. Nothing's filler. Nothing God says lacks wonder. It's a beautiful coronation uh, doxology that goes like this. Now blessed be Jehovah God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondered wondrous works in glory that excel. Who only doeth wondrous works. God is incapable of doing works that are not wonderful. He is not of my skill with carpentry. And you look at it and go, that's not wonderful. Everything he does is full of wonder. From the beginning of time, to the close. In this, God also created time and space. He's outside both of those. The theologians call this God of the eternal present. We pass through time and space. We move from one side of the room to another, but we also go through time. We have a past. We have a present, we have a future. We're moving through them. God doesn't move through time. He created it. He's outside of it. He sees all of it at the same time and can interact with it at the same time. Think of how he revealed himself to Moses. God says, well, who should I tell sent me? He says, tell him, I am sent you. I am. He's saying, I'm eternally present. That is the present tense of the verb. That's how he chooses to reveal himself in his personal name to the entire universe. I am. Think about that. The next time we don't think God is with us or God has forgotten us or we don't know where God is, think on his name. I am. I'm here. You're moving through time. I can see you moving through time. I'm with you. I'm already with you in the future. When Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about Abraham, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And all of them looked at him like he was crazy. As a teacher, I look at him 
like he's crazy. That's the wrong grammar, Jesus. All right? Before Abraham was, I am. God's revealing, Jesus is revealing, I've always existed. I'm always present. I'm with you from all time. Think about how much that diminishes the Jews and their concern about, could God really prophesy this person named Cyrus to come in a hundred years? They're talking to I am and saying, yeah, we don't see it. And God is saying, I see it. I am. Augustine in his Confessions says this, talking about God and his eternal presence, says, in you, God, the present day has no ending. And yet in you, it has its end. All these things have their being in you. They would have no way of passing away unless you set a limit to them. Because your years do not fail, your years are one today. It's all today for God. It's all today. He's there. One way of thinking about that is thinking of those old movie editors or directors, and they have those reels with all the little shots and frames of a movie. If you took that and put it out on the floor, the director could see the beginning shot, he could see the end of the movie, and he could see right in the middle. He could see all of the time, all at one time. The difference between the director and the God that we worship is, not only can God see us in time that way, but he also interacts with us at the same time in all those places. He's above it all. He's not worried about what's going to happen in the last scene. He already knows. It's there. If God's outside time, his prediction about Cyrus is not really a prediction at all. It's certainty. It will happen. What he says has happened. Of believers, he also is there at the beginning. Look at the language he uses in verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born, carried, by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am here, he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, I will save. This is a, a strong contrast to what he's comparing to all the gods and idols around them. The gods of the Babylonians, which are given in verse 1, he is saying that we create them, and then we carry them, and then they're a burden on us. Contrast that to what God has done with his people. He said, I created you, I carry you, and because I carry you, I carry all your burdens. It's a stark contrast to what the idols are doing. They don't do anything, and they're oppressive to the people that make them. God has created his people to glorify himself, and he will carry them forth from the beginning of time. 
that carries right into us. All the way through Scripture, it's given this essence of predestination. Highlighting the fact that God is sovereign over our salvation from the beginning of time. But also that God buys us back through the redemption of His Son. God owns us by buying us back. What's significant about this is thinking about what it means to create something. When we create something, we inherently tie with it this sense of possession. If I make a cake, it's mine. Tell my children, get to it. If I write a poem, it's mine. If I sire a child, he is mine, unless he's disobedient, and then he's my wife's. We recognize inherently that creation and possession are linked together. We recognize this with Israel. When God created them back in Deuteronomy, He makes that link for us. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. God chose Israel from the beginning of time, not because of anything they did. He made them into a people. He owns them. He's the one that freed them. He bought them. It's all Him. God works that way in salvation with us. He's the one doing it. But even if you step away from salvation, he owns everything. Every atom in the universe was made by him. He created it. It's his. Our entire beings, both the physical and the immaterial parts of us, are rightly owned by God and sustained by him. And yet we believe somehow in the midst of all that, all his claim to who we are, somehow we claim autonomy. No one should tell me what to do with my body. Nobody should tell me what to do with my life. No one has a right over me. Isn't there a great arrogance that we proclaim to the God of the universe who has created your heart that is beating right now? He's the one that carries us. He's the one that sustains your very breath right now. He owns you and loves you and will carry you. Think for a moment even about our own thoughts. Where do they come from? How is it that you tie one thing to another in your head? Where's the or origin of your inspiration? Try to explain to another person how you thought of an idea. At some point, you'll likely say, it just came to me. Isn't that amazing? We can't even explain how we think. 
God is standing over us saying, I'm sovereign, trust me. You don't even need to tell me how you think, just trust me. Not only is that he sovereign over the beginning, but he's also sovereign over the end. Look at all the words he uses in 10 through 13. He says, declaring the end, things not yet done, shall stand, I will accomplish, I will bring it to pass, I will do it, I will put this salvation in Zion. It doesn't seem like he's unsure about what's going to happen. He already knows what's going to happen. He's sovereign. Some theologians, called open theists, think that God is just perfectly reacting to the situations presented before him, that he doesn't actually know the future. They do this to try to account for the evil in the world. Well, if God were all-powerful, he would have stopped that. He doesn't know the future, therefore there's evil, but he'll react to it appropriately. No, that's not true. Look at how he describes himself here. If God were reacting and not sovereign over time, that means time would dictate to him. God would be a slave to time. Time would dictate when his actions take place and how they take place. God's not being dictated any of his actions and speech by anything. He's sovereign over it all. If it were true that God were just moving through time, we would wisely worship time over God because time would be more powerful. It would be good to reflect on this to see if we actually do worship time over God. What truly dictates the structure of your day? God or time? Can you recall any time that your morning devotions or prayer time were so sweet that you lost track of time? Or even showed up late to an appointment because you were fully immersed in your time with the Lord? How quickly do we evaluate relationships with other people based on time? I don't want to enter into that one because that might be messy and absorb all my time. Or I don't have time to dis disciple anyone right now because I'm too busy serving the Lord. How much of our day-to-day -day is dictated by time and how much by the Lord? Certainly the Lord uses time and structures our lives, but we should not be enslaved to it. Jesus was not. He had all the power to save and heal anyone he encountered. But he chose to spend time with his Lord and allow some people to not be healed. The past and future are linked closely. The prophets use a tense that's called the prophetic perfect tense. When they make an announcement, they do it as though it's already been completed. So when you read through Isaiah and the other prophets, many times they'll say, this has been accomplished, and yet it's still coming in the future. That's because God is certain. And this blink brings us to a quick understanding of what it means to remember in the Old Testament, in the Bible. For us, in the post-enlightenment period, when we talk about remembering things, 
we think about recalling it to mind as though our mind were a filing system and we're taking a file and bringing it to the front. That's not how the biblical world understood remembering. For them, it's, it's like this medieval, uh, medieval scholar says. It says, remembering is making present the voices of what is past, not to entomb either the past or the present, but to give them life together in a place common to both in memory. For a biblical understanding of memory, it's this idea of bringing what happened in the past to bear on the present situation. You see this all the way through the Bible. You can see it with how God talks. God says, I remember my people, as though he forgot about them because he was busy doing something else. No, every time God says, I remembered my people, it wasn't he brought a file to the front of his attention. It was he was bringing to bear the past promises to the present situation. When he frees his people out of Egypt, he says, I remembered my people. All the way through, I remembered my covenant with my people. When he calls us to remember, he's calling us to bring those past promises to the, future, to the present tense. Here in verse 8, when he says, remember this and stand firm, that's what he's calling to mind. As he goes on, he says, recall it to mind. Recall it to mind really means to bring it to your heart. Mind, heart, soul, inner being, those were all one word in the Hebrew. It meant bring that past promise and truth to bear on who you are presently. Because that's the nature of salvation that God gives in the Bible. It's not in the past. All salvation happens in the past, present, and future. Here at the end, he's talking to the stubborn of heart, which of course is you and me, as well as the Israelites. And look at what he says he says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. It's not far off. He's bringing it to bear on your present situation. What Christ did in the past for us was coming, is coming to bear on your present situation. It's not lost on him. For the Jews, as they looked forward to the coming Messiah and for freedom and for righteousness, he was bringing that to bear on their present situation as well. In all of this, he's saying, trust me, because salvation is at hand. It's all present tense for him. He sets forth his case, and he says, listen. Listen to me. In verse 12. He's calling them to obedience, to trust in him as he set forth his case that he's sovereign over all of time. He's bringing it forth to them. The servant that he has promised is coming to bear. You could do this with tons of images all through the scripture, but just one 
of thinking how Christ brings all of time together in one spot is when Christ breaks the bread with his disciples. All the feasts and all the sacrifices the Old Testament had to take care of their sins and the blood that was shed and the grain offerings was the covenant that God had given them. When Jesus comes forth and he's the servant that God has promised, he breaks bread with his disciples and says, look, I'm pouring this wine out because this is a new covenant I have with you. Then he also looks to the future and he says, I'm not going to eat and drink of the wine, this vine again until I drink in the new kingdom. You were saved back then from the Egyptians. Christ saves you presently from your sins, but you'll be finally saved when you're reunited with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the end. Christ is the center of all of that history, all of the time. He brings all of that together in one to powerfully save you in the present time. This seems all good in the abstract. As God has presented his case, it's very easy to acknowledge, yes, he's sovereign over time. I understand that. He controls everything. I understand that. But the trouble comes when it applies to our individual lives. When we look at the present or the next step God is calling to us, we often begin to doubt. We begin to say, God has called me here, but now I'm suffering. God can't be trusted now. Or maybe, God called me here, and now I'm failing. I keep on entering into the same sin over and over again. I can't trust God now. Or maybe there's even the temptation as the serpent used. Why is God keeping that good from me over there? If he's a good God, why don't I experience that good that I see in someone else's life or some other place or even some other time? He must not be trusted. If he were a good God, he would not keep that from me. The truth is we allow the darkness to set in. But God, through Isaiah 46, is saying, No, remember me. Remember me. If I'm sovereign over all of this, take the truths that I have given you and apply them right now to the present situation. He's literally walking with you. Think about how much he is wooing you as you are going through trials, and the first thing you want to do is to turn away from the hand that is extended to you. We run to the shadows, and he's right there wanting to carry our burdens with us. He's sovereign. He already knows how it's going to go for you. He's not worried. He's got you. From the womb, he's carried you. He knows your timing. He has a plan for you. And it's all for his glory. He calls us here, as he did with the stubborn of heart, to trust him 
trust him in the little things, in the large things, in every moment of our day, because he already knows. He's already there. He's already there with you in the future. We need to believe what Christ has done has been done for our present situation. The God of the universe, the God over space and time, knows no time and no space too small for his expansive love. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you have entered into time and space and have intimately given of yourself so that you are truly Emmanuel. You are God with us. The greatest promise you have ever given is that you will be with us. And Lord, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we can hold on to that truth, that we can remember you in the biblical sense of all the great truths and all the revelations you have given, that they would bear on our present situation and change us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.